Section six of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jairus Amar. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume three. The Great Explorers and Travelers of the Nineteenth Century by Jules Verne First Part, Chapter One The Dawn of a Century of Discovery, Six About the year 1808, the throne of Kabul was occupied by Suja ul Mulk. England, uneasy at the projects formed by Napoleon with a view of attacking her possessions in India, and at the offers of alliance made by him through General Gardin to the Shah of Prussia, resolved to send an embassy to the court of Kabul, hoping to gain the king over to the interests of the East India Company. Mount Swart Elphinstone was selected as envoy, and has left an interesting account of his mission. He collected much novel information concerning this region and to the tribes by which it is peopled. His book acquires a new interest in our own day, and we turn with pleasure to pages devoted to the Khyberis and other mountain tribes, amid the events which are now taking place. Leaving Delhi in October 1808, Elphinstone reached Kanun, where the desert commences, and then the Shekhauti, a district inhabited by Rajputs. At the end of October, the embassy arrived at Tinguana, a pretty town, the Raja of which was an inveterate opium smoker. He is described as a small man, with large eyes, much inflamed by the use of opium. His beard, which was curled up to his ears on each side, gave him a ferocious appearance. Junjunka, whose gardens give freshness in the midst of these desert regions, is not now a dependency on the Raja of Bekanir, whose revenues do not exceed 1,250,000 francs. How is it possible for that prince to collect such revenues from a desert and uncultivated territory overrun by myriads of rats, flocks of gazelles, and herds of wild asses. The path across the sandhills was so narrow that two camels abreast could scarcely pass it. At the least deviation from the path, those animals would sink in the sand as if it had been snow, so that the smallest difficulty with the head of the column delayed the entire caravan. Those in front could not advance if those in the rear were delayed, and lest they should lose the sight of the guides, trumpets and drums were employed as signals to prevent separation. One could almost fancy it the march of an army. The warlike sounds, the brilliant uniforms and arms, were scarcely calculated to convey the idea of a peaceful embassy. 
the envoy speaks of a want of water, and the bad quality of that which was procurable was unbearable to the soldiers and servants. Although they quenched their thirst with the abundant watermelons, they could not do so without ill results to their health. Most of the natives of India who accompanied the embassy suffered from low fever and dysentery. Forty persons died during the first week's stay at Beconir. La Fontaine's description of the floating sticks might be aptly applied to Beconir. From afar off it is something. Near at hand it is not. The external appearance of the town is pleasant, but it is a mere disorderly collection of cabins enclosed by mud walls. At that time, the country was invaded by five armies, and the belligerents sent a succession of envoys to the English ambassador, hoping to obtain, if not substantial assistance, at least moral support. Elphinstone was received by the Rajah of Bekanir. This court, he says, was different from all I had seen elsewhere in India. The men were wider than the Hindus, resembled Jews in feature, and wore magnificent turbans. The Rajah and his relatives wore caps of various colors adorned with precious stones. The Rajah leant upon a steel buckler, the center of which was raised, and the border encrusted with diamonds and rubies. Shortly after our entrance, the Rajah proposed that we should retire from the heat and importunity of the crowd. We took our seats on the ground, according to Indian custom, and the Rajah delivered a discourse, in which he said he was the vassal of the sovereign of Delhi, and that as Delhi was in the possession of the British, he honored the sovereignty of my government in my person. He caused the keys of the fort to be brought to him, and handed them to me, but having received no instructions regarding such an event, I refused them. After much persuasion, the Rajah consented to keep his keys. Shortly afterwards, a troop of bayaders came in, and dancing and singing continued until we took our leave. Upon leaving Bekanir, the travelers entered a desert, in the middle of which stand the cities of Manigur and Bahawulpur, where a compact crowd awaited the embassy. The high faces upon which Alexander's fleet sailed scarcely answered to the idea such a reminiscence inspires. Upon the morrow, Bahawil Khan, governor of one of the eastern provinces of Kabul, arrived, bringing magnificent presents for the English ambassador, whom he conducted by the river high faces as far as Multan, a town famous for its silk manufacturers. The governor of the town had been terror-struck at hearing of the approach of the English, and there had been a discussion as to the attitude it was to assume, and whether the latter intended to take the town by stratagem, or to demand its surrender. When these fears were allayed, a cordial welcome followed. 
Elphinstone's description, if somewhat exaggerated, is not the less curious. After describing how the governor saluted Mr. Strachey, the secretary to the embassy, after the Persian custom, he adds, They took their way together towards the tent, and the disorder increased. Some were wrestling, others on horseback mixed with the pedestrians. Mr. Strachey's horse was nearly thrown to the ground, and the secretary regained his equilibrium with difficulty. The Khan and his suite mistook the road in approaching the tent, and threw themselves upon the cavalry with such impetuosity that the latter had scarcely time to face about and to let them pass. The disordered troops fell back upon the tent. The servants of the Khan fled. The barriers were torn up and trampled underfoot. Even the ropes of the tent broke, and the cloth covering very nearly fell on our heads. The tents were crowded immediately, and all was in darkness. The governor and six of his suite seated themselves. The others stood at arms. The visit was of short duration. The governor took refuge in repeating his rosary with great fervor and in saying to me, in agitated tones, You are welcome, you are welcome. Then, on the pretext that the crowd inconvenienced me, he retired. The account is amusing, but are all its details accurate? That, however, is of little moment. On the 31st December, the embassy passed the Indus, and entered a country cultivated with a care and method unlike anything to be seen in Hindustan. The natives of this country had never heard of the English, and took them for Mughals, Afghans, or Hindus. The strangest reports were current among these lovers of the marvelous. It was necessary to remain a month at Dara to await the arrival of a Menander, a functionary whose duty it was to introduce ambassadors. Two persons attached to the embassy availed themselves of that opportunity to ascend the peak of Tukde Suleiman, or the crown of Solomon, upon which, according to the legend, the Ark of Noah rested after the deluge. The departure from Dera took place upon the 7th of February, and after traveling through delightful countries, the embassy arrived at Peshawar. The king had come to meet them, for Peshawar was not the usual residence of the court. The narrative says, Upon the day of our arrival, our dinner was furnished from the royal kitchen. The dishes were excellent. Afterwards, we had the meat prepared in our own way, but the king continued to provide us with breakfast, dinner, and supper, more than sufficient for two thousand persons, two hundred horses, and a large number of elephants. Our suite was large, and much of this was needed. Still, 
I had great trouble at the end of a month in persuading his majesty to allow some retrenchment of this useless profusion. As might have been expected, the negotiations preceding presentation at court were long and difficult. Finally, however, all was arranged, and the reception was as cordial as diplomatic customs permitted. The king was loaded with diamonds and precious stones. He wore a magnificent crown, and the Kohinoor sparkled upon one of his bracelets. This was the largest diamond in existence. A drawing of it may be seen in Tavernier's travels. The Kohinoor is now in possession of the Queen of England. Elphinstone, after describing the ceremonies, says, I must admit that if certain things, especially the extraordinary richness of the royal costume, excited my astonishment, there was also much that fell below my expectations. Taking it as a whole, one saw less indication of the prosperity of a powerful state than symptoms of the decay of a monarchy which had formerly been flourishing. The ambassador goes on to speak of the rapacity with which the king's suite quarreled about the presents offered by the English, and gives other details which struck him unpleasantly. Elphinstone was more agreeably impressed with the king at his second interview. He says, It is difficult to believe that an eastern monarch can possess such a good manner, and so perfectly preserve his dignity while trying to please. The plain of Peshawar, which is surrounded on all but the eastern side by high mountains, is watered by three branches of the Kabul River, which meet here, and by many smaller rivers. Hence it is singularly fertile. Plums, peaches, pears, quinces, pomegranates, dates, grow in profusion. The population, so sparsely sprinkled throughout the arid countries which the ambassador had come through, were collected here. And Lieutenant McCartney counted no less than thirty-two villages. At Peshawar, there are one hundred thousand inhabitants, living in brick houses three stories high. Various mosques, not in any way remarkable for architecture, a fine caravanserai, and the fortified castle in which the king received the embassy, are the only buildings of importance. The varieties of races, with different costumes, present a constantly changing picture. A human kaleidoscope, which appears made especially for the astonishment of a stranger. Persians, Afghans, Khyberis, Hazaures, Toranis, etc., with horses, dromedaries, and Bactrian camels, afford the naturalist much both to observe and to describe respecting bipeds and quadrupeds. But the charm of this town, as of every other throughout India, is to be found in its gardens, with their abundant and fragrant flowers, especially roses. The king's situation at this time was far from pleasant. His brother, 
whom he had dethroned after a popular insurrection, had now taken arms and just seized Kabul. A longer stay was impossible for the embassy. They had to return to India by way of Atok and the valley of Husum Abdul, which is celebrated for its beauty. There, Elphinstone was to await the result of the struggle between the brothers, which would decide the fate of the throne of Kabul. But he had received letters of recall. Moreover, fate was against Suja, who, after being completely worsted, had been forced to seek safety in flight. The embassy proceeded on its way, and crossed the country of the Six, a rude mountain race, half-naked and semi-barbarous. The Six, who a few years later were to make themselves terribly famous, says Elphinstone, are tall, thin men, and very strong. Their garments consist of trousers which reach only halfway down the thigh. They wear cloaks of skins which hang negligently from the shoulder. Their turbans are not large, but are very high and flattened in front. No scissors ever touch either hair or beard. Their arms are bows and arrows or muskets. Men of rank have very handsome bows and never pay a visit without being armed with them. Almost the whole Punjab belongs to Ranjit Singh, who, in 1805, was the only one among many chiefs in the country. At the same time of our expedition, he had acquired the sovereignty of the whole country occupied by the Sikhs, and had taken the title of king. No incident of any moment marked the return of the embassy to Delhi. In addition to the narrative of events which had taken place before their eyes, its members brought back invaluable documents concerning the geography of Afghanistan and Kabulistan, the climate, animals, and vegetable and mineral productions of that vast country. Elphinstone devotes several chapters of his narrative to the origin, history, government, legislation, condition of the women, language, and commerce of these countries, facts that were largely appropriated by the best-informed newspapers when the recent English expedition to Afghanistan was undertaken. His work ends with an exhaustive treatise upon the tribes who formed the population of Afghanistan, and a summary of invaluable information respecting the neighboring countries. Elphinstone's narrative is curious, interesting, and valuable for many reasons, and may be consulted in our own day with advantage. The zeal of the East India Company was indefatigable. One expedition had no sooner returned than another was started, with different instructions. It was highly important to be thoroughly au fait of the ever-changing Asiatic policy, and to prevent coalition between the various native tribes against the conquerors of the soil. In 1812, a new idea, and a more peaceful one, 
gave rise to the journey of Moorcroft and Captain Hearsay to Lake Manasarowar, in the province of the Undes, which is a portion of Little Tibet. This time, the object was to bring back a flock of cashmere goats, whose long silk hair is used in the manufacture of the world-famed shawls. In addition, it was proposed to disprove the assertion of the Hindus that the source of the Ganges is beyond the Himalayas in Lake Manasarowar, a difficult and perilous task. It was first of all necessary to penetrate into Nepal, whilst the government of that country made such an attempt very difficult, and thence to enter a region from which the natives of Nepal are excluded, and with still greater reason the English. The explorers disguised themselves as Hindu pilgrims. Their suite consisted of twenty-five persons, one of whom pledged himself to walk in strides of four feet. This was certainly a rough method of ascertaining the distance traversed. Messrs. Moorcroft and Hearsay passed through Pereli, and followed Webb's route as far as Josimath, which place they left on the 26th of May, 1812. They soon had to cross the last chain of the Himalayas, with increasing difficulties, owing to the rarity of the villages, which caused a scarcity of provisions and service, and the bad roads, at so great a height above the level of the sea. Nevertheless, they saw Daba, where there is an important lamazari, Gortope, Mysore, and, a quarter of a mile from Tirthapuri, curious hot springs. The original narrative, which appeared in the Annales du Voyages, speaks of this water as flowing from two openings six inches in diameter, in a calcareous plain some three miles in extent, and which is raised in almost every direction from ten to twelve feet above the surrounding country. It is formed by the earthy deposits left by the water in cooling. The water rises four inches above the level of the plain. It is clear, and so warm that one cannot keep a hand in it longer than a few minutes. It is surrounded by a thick cloud of smoke. The water, flowing over a horizontal surface, hollows out basins of various shapes, which as they receive the earthy deposits contract again. When they are filled up, the flow of the water again hollows out a new reservoir, which in its turn becomes full. Flowing thus from one to the other, it finally reaches the plain below. The deposit left by the water is as white as the purest stucco close to the opening. A little further it becomes a pale yellow, and further still, saffron-colored. At the other spring it is first rose-colored, and then dark red. These different colors are to be found in the calcareous plain, and are no doubt the work of centuries. Tirthapuri, the residence of a lama, is of great antiquity, and is a favorite rendezvous of the faithful 
as a wall more than four hundred feet long and four wide, formed of stones upon which prayers are inscribed, sufficiently testifies. Upon the 1st of August, the travelers left this place, hoping to reach Lake Manasaruwar, and leaving on the right Lake Rowanrod, which is supposed to be the source of the largest branch of the Sutledge. Lake Manasaruwar lies at the foot of immense sloping prairies, to the south of the gigantic mountains. This is the most venerated of all the sacred places of the Hindus, which is no doubt owing to its distance from Hindustan, the dangers and fatigues of the journey, and the necessity of pilgrims providing themselves with money and provisions. Hindu geographers regard this lake as the source of the Ganges, the Sutlej, and to the Kali rivers. Moorcroft had no doubt as to the error of this assertion as regards the Ganges. Desiring to ascertain the truth as to the other rivers, he explored the steep banks of the lake, and found a number of streams which flowed into it, but none flowing out of it. It is possible that before the earthquake which destroyed Srinagar, the lake had an outlet, but Moorcroft found no trace of it. The lake is situated between the Himalayas and the Kailas chain, and is of irregular oblong shape, five leagues long by four wide. The end of the expedition was attained. Moorcroft and Hearsay returned towards India, passed by Kangri and saw Rawanrod, but Moorcroft was too weak, and could not continue the tour. He regained Tirthapuri and Daba, and suffered a great deal in crossing the ghat which separates Hindustan from Tibet. The narrative describes the winds which come from the snow-covered mountains of Bhutan as cold and piercing, and the ascent of the mountain as long and painful, its descent slippery and steep making precautions necessary. We suffered greatly, says the writer. Our goats escaped by the negligence of their drivers, and climbed up to the edge of a precipice some hundred feet in height. A mountaineer disturbing them from their perilous position, they began the descent, running down a very steep incline. The hinder ones kicked up the stones, which falling with violence, threatened to strike the foremost. It was curious to know how cleverly they managed to run, and avoid the falling stones. Very soon the Gorkalis, who had hitherto been content to place obstacles in the way of the travelers, approached them with intent to stop them. For some time the firmness displayed by the English kept them at bay, but at last, gaining courage from their numbers, they began an attack. Twenty men, says Moorcroft, threw themselves upon me. One seized me by my neck, and, pressing his knees against me, tried to strangle me by tightening my cravat. Another passed a cord round my legs and pulled me from behind. I was on the point of fainting. 
my gun, upon which I was leaning, escaped my hold. I fell. They dragged me up by my feet until I was nearly garroted. When at last I rose, nothing could exceed the expression of fierce delight on the faces of my conquerors. Fearing that I should attempt to escape, two soldiers held me by a rope and gave me a blow from time to time, no doubt to remind me of my position. Mr. Hearsay had not supposed that he should be attacked so soon. He was rinsing out his mouth when the hubbub began, and did not hear my cries for help. Our men could not find the few arms we possessed. Some escaped, I know not how. The others were seized, amongst them Mr. Hearsay. He was not bound as I was. They contented themselves with holding his arms. The chief of this band of savages informed the two Englishmen that they had been recognized, and were arrested for having traveled in the country in the disguise of Hindu pilgrims. A fakir, whom Moorcroft had engaged as a goat-herd, succeeded in escaping, and took two letters to the English authorities. Aid was sent, and on the 1st of November the prisoners were released. Not only were excuses offered for their treatment, but what had been taken from them was returned, and the Raja of Nepal gave them permission to leave his dominions. All's well that ends well. To complete our sketch, we must give an account of Mr. Fraser's expedition to the Himalayas, and Hodgson's exploration to the source of the Ganges in 1817. Captain Webb, as we have seen, had traced the course of that river past the valley of Dune, to Kajani, near Raital. Leaving this spot upon the 28th of May, 1817, Captain Hodgson reached the source of the Ganges in three days, and proceeded to Gengautri. He found that the river issues from a low arch in the midst of an enormous mass of frozen snow, more than 300 feet high. The stream was already of considerable size, being no less than 27 feet wide and 18 inches deep. In all probability, the Ganges first emerged into the light at this spot. Captain Hodgson wished to solve various questions. For example, what was the length of the river under the frozen snow? Is it the product of the melting of these snows, or did it spring from the ground? But, wishing to explore further upwards than his guides advised, the traveller sank into the snow up to his neck, and had to retrace his steps with great difficulty. The spot from which the Ganges issued is situated 12,914 feet above the level of the sea in the Himalayas. Hodgson also explored the source of the Jumna. At Jamautri, the mass of the snow from which the river makes its escape is no less than 180 feet wide and more than 40 feet deep between two perpendicular walls of granite.
This source is situated on the southeast slope of the Himalayas. The extension of the British power in India was necessarily attended by considerable danger. The various native states, many of which could boast of a glorious past, had only yielded in obedience to the well-known political principle, divide and govern, ascribed to Machiavelli. But the day might come when they would merge their rivalries and enmities to make common cause against the invader. There was anything but a cheering prospect for the company, whose policy it was to maintain the system that hitherto worked so well. Certain neighboring states, still powerful enough to regard the growth of the British power with jealousy, might serve as harbors of refuge to the discontented, and become the centers of dangerous intrigues. Of all these neighboring states, that which demanded the strictest surveillance was Persia, not only on account of its contiguity to Russia, but because Napoleon was known to have designs in connection with it, which nothing but his European wars prevented him from putting into execution. In February 1807, General Gardin, who had gained his promotion in the Wars of the Republic, and had distinguished himself at Austerlitz, Jena, and Eylau, was appointed minister plenipotentiary to Persia, with instructions to ally himself with Shah Fit Ali against England and Russia. The selection was fortunate, for the grandfather of General Gardin had held a similar post at the court of the Shah. Gardin crossed Hungary, and reached Constantinople and Asia Minor. But when he entered Prussia, Abbas Mirza had succeeded his father Feth Ali. The new Shah received the French ambassador with respect, loaded him with presents, and granted certain privileges to Catholics and French merchants. These were, however, the only results of the mission, which was thwarted by the English general Malcolm whose influence was then paramount, and Gardain, disheartened by finding all his efforts frustrated, and recognizing that success was hopeless, returned to France the following year. His brother Ange de Gardain, who had acted as his secretary, published a brief narrative of the journey, containing several curious details respecting the antiquities of Persia, which have been, however, largely supplemented by works brought out by Englishmen. The French consul, Adrien Dupré, attached to Gardain's mission, also published a work under the title of Voyage en Perse, Faidans Luanis Mille Huit Cent Huit à Mille Huit Cent Neuf, en traversant l'Anatolie. La Mesopotamie, depuis Constantinople, jusqu'à l'extrémité du Golfe Prussique, et de la la Irwan, suivi du details sur le Mors, le usages et le commerce du Persans, sur le cours du Terran et du notice du tribus de la Perse. 
the book bears out the assertions of its title and is a valuable contribution to the geography and ethnography of Persia. The English, who made a much longer stay in the country than the French, were better able to collect the abundant materials at hand and to make a judicious selection from them. Two works were long held to be the chief authorities on the subject. One of these was by James Morier, who availed himself of the leisure he enjoyed as secretary to the embassy to acquaint himself with every detail of Persian manners, and on his return to England published several oriental romances which obtained a signal success, owing to the variety and novelty of the scenes described, and the fidelity to nature of every feature, however minute. The second of the two volumes alluded to above was the large quarto work by John MacDonald Kinnair on the geography of Persia. This book, which made its mark and left far behind it everything previously published on the subject, not only gives, as its title implies, very valuable information on the boundaries of the country, its mountains, rivers, and climate, but also contains interesting and trustworthy details respecting its government, constitution, army, commerce, animal, vegetable, and mineral productions, population, and revenue. After giving an exhaustive and brilliant picture of the material and moral resources of the Persian Empire, Kinnair goes on to describe its different provinces quoting from the mass of valuable documents accumulated by himself, thus making his work the most complete and impartial yet issued. Kinnair passed the years 1808 to 1814 in traveling about Asia Minor, Armenia, and Kurdistan, and the different posts held by him during that period were such as to give him exceptional opportunities for making observations and comparing their results. In his several capacities as captain in the service of the company, political agent to the Nawab of the Carnatic, or private traveler, his critical acumen was never at fault, and his wide knowledge of Oriental character and Oriental manners enabled him to recognize the true significance of many an event and many a revolution which would have escaped the notice of less experienced observers. At the same time, William Price, also a captain in the East India Company's service, who had been attached as interpreter and secretary to Sir William Gore Ousley's embassy to Persia in 1810, devoted himself to the study of the cuneiform character. Many had previously attempted to decipher it, with results as various as they were ridiculous, and, like those of his predecessors and contemporaries, Price's opinions were mere guesswork, but he succeeded in interesting a certain class of students in this obscure branch of research, and may be said to have perpetuated the theories of Niebuhr and other Orientalists. To Price, we owe an account of the journey of the English embassy to the Persian court, after which he published two essays 
on the antiquities of Persepolis and Babylon. Mr. Ousley, who had accompanied his brother Sir William as secretary, availed himself of his sojourn at the court of Tehran to study Persian. His works do not, however, bear upon geography or political economy, but treat only of inscriptions, coins, manuscripts, and literature. In a word, of everything connected with the intellectual and material history of the country. To him we owe an edition of Frisi and many other volumes, which came out at just the right time to supplement the knowledge already acquired of the country of the Shah. End of section six.